Hi, I'm Erica Anderson, author of Change from the Inside Out, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive. Joining me today is Erica Anderson. Erica is the founding partner of Proteus, a coaching, consulting, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. She and her colleagues at Proteus support leaders at all levels to get ready and stay ready to meet whatever the future might bring. Erica advises leading executives in companies like NBC Universal, GE, Madison Square Garden, focusing them on organizing, visioning, and strategy, team development, and their own management and leadership evolution. Erica is one of the most popular leadership bloggers at Forbes.com. She's also the host of the Proteus Leader Show, a regular podcast that offers quick practical support for leaders and managers. If her name sounds familiar on this podcast, it's because she was a guest on episode 133. Erica lives in upstate New York and is here to talk about her book, Change from the Inside Out. Welcome back, Erica. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. Since you've been a guest before, tell me what is a quote or saying that guides you in your work today? One very simple sentence saying that I love is assume positive intent. We've been saying this and using this at Proteus for 30 years. The reason I love it is because people so often don't do it. When we come into a conversation, especially if there's been a misunderstanding or miscommunication, we often assume that the other person has negative intent toward us, that they're either trying to make things difficult or that they don't care about us. I've seen often how this just immediately sets the conversation down on the wrong track. If you can go into pretty much any conversation, assuming that the other person is doing what they're doing because they believe it's the right thing, not that you agree with them or that you're on the same page, but just that they have positive intent, then the conversation is going to start in a whole different place. You're going to start by being curious than judgmental or negative. You're going to start with this, I wonder why they did that. I wonder why they're starting out this way. And that just creates an openness for a real conversation where you can find out about each other and end up on the same page. It's such vastly useful. It was the first thing you thought of when I asked the question, do you remember either a recent time or an early time when you applied that during a conflict where you were not seeing things the same way as somebody else? When you remembered it, something shifted, something changed. Oh, absolutely. The place where I use it the most often is with one of my business partners, Jeff, who we've been friends for 35 years and we've been business partners for 20. Even though our values are very consonant, our brains are wired very differently. (laughs) We often come at things in different ways. Recently, he had said something and my immediate response was, why did he do that? He knew I wouldn't like that. I was like, oh, da, 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 da. Assume positive intent. Come on, Erica. So I went into the conversation in this calm, curious spot. Like, Jeff, I, I need a little context. How come you decided to do that? It turned out he had a perfectly good reason for doing it. Nothing to do with any kind of negative intention toward me. I know that if I had come into that conversation with my first self-talk ringing in my mind, it would have been a very difficult conversation. And it wasn't at all. 
it was a great conversation. Yeah, it makes such a difference. Yeah. And it really adds legitimacy and authenticity and authority when we talk about using the tools we recommend to others, for yes, sure. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I think will be very interesting for people listening is the role of curiosity with change. Can you talk about why that's significant? Many people think that change should just be about laying out a plan and having people follow it. You're saying curiosity, which is a very internal state. What's the significance of that? And how do you encourage people to adopt this position? I'd love to answer that question by talking about, if it's okay with you, what I think of as the core of this new book, which is what we've come to call the change arc. Is it okay if I go there? Yes. I love the arc and especially talk about the spacing yes. between the events. That's really important, I thought. So when I was writing this book, we had a change practice for almost a decade and we had a change model, which worked very well. But what I always try and do with my books is crack the code down to the core. What was really interesting to me is change seems hard for most people. Why is that? How do individual people go through change? How do each of us, when we do make a change, how does that happen? When we don't, why? How does that not happen? Where I first got to is I often think about history, about the whole history of humanity and how how history really impacts us today, who we have been as a human race. So I started thinking about this concept called homeostasis. It's an age-old concept, but it's a word that's been around and in use for about 100 years. What it means is coming back to a state that feels stable and that supports survival. When the word first started getting used, it was about our physiology. When we're cold, we want to warm up. When we're hot, we want to cool off. When we're hungry, we want to eat. Coming back to those steady states, that's finding homeostasis. And we have a strong impulse to do that. It's the basic thermostat principle. Exactly. The word started being used about 50 years ago, not only for physiological thermostat, but also socially, politically, economically, that for all of our history as human beings, coming back to that previous steady state was seen as the least dangerous alternative. For most of our history, change has been a threat and a danger. If there's a famine, we want to come back to eating regularly. If there's a war, we want to come back to peace and prosperity. If there's a plague, we want to come back to being healthy. So we're pretty deeply wired toward that homeostatic urge. So I thought, okay, so no wonder change, especially change that's imposed upon us, seems dangerous and threatening. So starting from that, I then observed myself and many other people, what happens when a change comes at us? My understanding of that ended up being turned into this thing we call the change arc. So the first thing is when a change comes at us is the stage we call proposed change. We want to find some things out about the change. And it's very predictable. We want first to know, what does this mean for me? What is this change going to do to me? What are the impacts on me? That's the first thing we want to know. Second thing is, why is this happening? That's our brain's attempt to put it into some kind of order. Why is this? What's the reason this is happening? What are some of the benefits that might accrue or the costs that might accrue? Then we want to know, what will it look like when this change has been made? It's interesting. When I was researching the book, one of the things I found out is that a lot of neuropsychologists now think that fear of the unknown is our deepest fear. So of course, when a change comes at us, we want to know what's it going to look like. That's contrary to what a lot of people have popularized as the fear of death and taxes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because there is some unknown in there with death, but there has been a lot of research done over the last 10 years that the thing that's scariest to us is not knowing what's coming. That really supports that whole homeostatic thing because homeostasis 
this is coming back to the known, right? So going into an unknown feels terrifying to us. So that's the third thing we want to know is what will the future be like post this change? So we start gathering that information. And then, and this is because you've read the book, the core of this arc is this mindset shift. Because of our history of homeostasis, as we're gathering this information, our initial mindset about the change is most often that the change is going to be difficult, costly, and weird. And difficult means I don't know how to do it. Other people are going to get in the way of me doing it. Costly means simply it's going to take away things I value. So it might be practical things like time and money, but we're more likely to think of things like relationship, identity, power, reputation. Changing in this way is going to take those things away from me. Weird just means strange and unnatural, not how we do things around. What I discovered is that when someone can move their mindset, can change their thinking from this change is going to be difficult, costly and weird to thinking that it could be easy or at least doable, rewarding and normal. That's when people start to be willing and able to behave in the new ways that the change requires and the change occur. I just want to underscore that it's they think it could be yeah. that, not that they believe it will yeah. be. That is such a critical difference. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Yes. Yes. Thank you for picking up on that because when you think that it could be those things, then that opens you up back to your original thing. You get curious about how could it be? How could I make it easy? How could I make it rewarding? What could the rewards be? How could it become normal? And normal is an interesting thing. Normal in this context, we found, means people like me do it. People who I think of as my peers are doing or are open to doing this thing. And people I admire and want to emulate and who are important to me in my life do it, which is why it's critically important for leaders to model a change. Because if leaders are saying, yeah, go ahead and do this thing, but they're not doing it. All kinds of red lights flash. I love the book title that comes to mind. Change is easy. You go first (laughs) was the title of the book. And I just thought that was great. Exactly. (laughs) You had a wonderful example in the book where you went through these phases when you were encouraged to begin a podcast. What was your initial reaction when somebody said, Erica, you should have a podcast? Yes. Thanks for reminding me of that. When I was writing my last book, Be Bad First, which came out five years ago, my publicist at the time said, Erica, you really should do a podcast. My immediate thought was that it would be difficult, costly, and weird. Yes, I don't know how to do that. It would take cost me time and effort. It just feels strange. I don't know why would I do it. I noticed it and I said, okay, how do I move my own mindset to it could be? So I gathered, and I'm sure notice this in the book because you're such a noticing kind of person, that you have three big tools to help yourself move your mindset and to help other people: information, stories, and experience. So I gathered some information information about how to do it and got some stories from people who were doing it already and who thought it was more rewarding than costly. Then I put myself into the experience of being on other people's podcasts so I could at least see it from that angle. And as I gathered up the information and listened to people's stories and got some experience, my mindset started to shift. And I started to think, oh, okay, okay, I could do this. I could make it, I could make it easy. I could have it be brief which would be easy for me. It would be fun to talk to all these cool people. I can see how it would be helpful to the book. My mindset just started to shift. When I got to the point where I thought, yeah, it could be easy, rewarding, and normal. Then I started doing it and I've been doing it for the last five years. It's amazing. Shift doesn't happen all in one step. It's not like flipping a light switch. It's moving to one stage, then to the next, then to the next. So that expect it to happen in an instant and it doesn't. People could often 
would become frustrated and disappointed. There was a wonderful example that you illustrate in Change from the Inside Out, which is just how long it took for the medical community to adopt the practice of washing your hands with disinfectant in between seeing patients. Yeah. And it started out in the mid-1850s with Semmelweis. He saw a drop in infant mortality from 22% to 2.2%. For me, that's a huge statistic. That would really get my attention. But it, it took not just days, weeks, months. It took decades later before it became common practice. What did you learn? What's your perspective that you gained from that anecdote and illustration in the medical community? I was thrilled to find that. And actually, just a slight correction, it wasn't infant mortality. It was maternal mortality. Because when doctors weren't washing their hands, this seems so crazy now, but they would come directly from autopsies to helping birth. So mothers were getting what's called puerperal fever and dying. And just wash your hands in lime water, as you said, down from almost 20% to 2%. It's such a great example because the reason I think that it took so long, it's not hard to do that, but it was about the costliness and the weirdness. And what it was costing, I think, is reputation. We're doctors. We save lives. The idea that something that we're doing or not doing could literally be killing our patients. That was just really hard to get past. No one wanted to be the first to do it. It was that kind of what you read into it. It's not even the first, it's me. And that's the thing I've learned about changes entirely personal, it's individual. It almost doesn't matter if everybody else is doing it, except that helps with normal. You yourself, each person has to go through that change arc, kind of moving ahead. But our five-step model, I see it as a way to cascade all of the people affected by the change through their change arc while at the same time uh, planning for and executing the practical step of whatever the change is, which is generally speaking, all that gets focused on. When there's an organizational change, usually right. what gets focused on are the practical nuts and bolts aspects of the change. And this idea that individual people have to be okay with the change and you have to cascade them through that process at the same time, that doesn't happen. That's why change most of the time doesn't work. So true. And we've seen that in the popular business business press, as well as with our own client experiences. Yeah. Just to go back to the medical example for just a moment, the contemporary view at that time was that germs floated through the air. And for the doctor to say, you know what, based on research and based on the empirical evidence, it's actually the germs that we carry on our fingers was such a radical idea. Haven't we seen the confusion of how things get passed? Isn't that relevant today as we're looking to protect ourselves and our workers contracting COVID and make being healthy and protecting our families. Isn't that same issue of making sure that there's a clear model? So isn't it that same idea of being easy, rewarding, and normal that would be helpful from our public health officials, being able to explain things and following this model that would clarify and reduce a lot of the misinformation, anxiety, hesitation, and confusion that's out there? Absolutely. I have the benefit of living in a county. We have a wonderful county executive who's been just amazing throughout this pandemic and has really approached this intuitively in the way we're talking about. We have a very high vaccination rate in our county because he has done this and he has understood, as he said, when the vaccination problem changed from being a supply problem to a demand problem in the late spring and early summer, he immediately got together with his team and created ways to go out into the community and find places, groups of vaccinated.
vaccine-hesitant people and focus on helping them understand that it could be easy and rewarding and normal to get vaccinated. The main way he focused on normal was by finding community leaders in those vaccine-hesitant groups. Often they're faith leaders. He would go into churches where a low percentage of people, sometimes people of color for good reasons, vaccine-hesitant, and have those faith leaders have these messages about ease and reward. And coming from them, it felt really normal, often having the faith leaders get vaccinated in front of their congregations and then have it set up so that people could get vaccinated right then. It has been fascinating to me to watch him, his name's Pat Ryan, absolutely use this model without, I'm sure, even knowing it consciously. It's what people who are smart about change just do automatically. Now, in a lot of organizations, I'm sure leaders of businesses of all sizes and types are listening to this. Some of them are saying, oh, our organization just doesn't do well with change. They have this attitude. We need to label. Everyone has a capacity for change. I love that we have this model and this image of a pipe. What is your capacity for moving change through your organization? Once you have that as your model, can you talk about whether that capacity can be influenced and improved? Yes. In fact, this is a good time to talk about this five-step model. That's a way of increasing change capacity. The first step of our five-step model is clarify the change and why it's needed. Those are two of the three things we want to find out about when a change comes at us. So usually at this point, the change is being considered by a small group. And in a small company, it's very often just the leader of the company and kind of one or two close allies. We need to change our production process. Okay, let's think about that. Let's get really clear on what the change is and why it needs to happen. If that small group gets clear about it, they're clarifying it for themselves, but ultimately they're clarifying it on behalf of the organization. I'm also going to introduce something else to this because you talk about the pitch for change. You talk about an elevator pitch for change in a way that is unique. For people who have said, let's change, I'm really clear on what needs to happen. They're skipping important steps. Can you talk about what the significance is of making sure you have an elevator pitch for change as you look to enroll other people? Yeah, thank you. So in this first step, once you get clear about the change, then you look at the risks and rewards of changing. What are the risks of changing and of not changing? What are the rewards of changing? You can use that then to craft what we call the elevator pitch, which is a simple why for people. What's important is that in that elevator pitch, it's here's how we came to consider the change. Here's what the change is. Here's why it's happening. Here's how we'll help you do it. Just those four simple elements. And if you can get it down to a minute and a half, then you as the first team that's talking about this, you can communicate that to everybody as you bring them in. The reason that's important is because quite often, as you say, when leaders are contemplating a change, they think about why it will be beneficial to them, but they don't think about why it will be beneficial to the people in the organization. One of the examples I use in the book is, okay, so if making a change is going to make the company more profitable, that's very likely to be inspiring and compelling to the owners of the company. But people in the company who will make 12 or 15 or $20 an hour independent of how profitable it is, that's probably not going to be compelling to them. Think about them. Why would this change be meaningful to them? Is it going to make their jobs easier? Is it going to make their jobs more 
fun? Are the clients going to like it better? What are the things that are going to happen as a result of this change that will be compelling to the people you're speaking to in your organization? So that needs to be part of the elevator pitch, that compelling why for people. If managers and leaders are having trouble coming up with this on their own, what could they do to actually hear from others who could tell them what would make their jobs easier? I love that question. One of the things we recommend is that starting with this first step, it's useful and often necessary to bring some other people into the tent. And you have to bring them in carefully and you have to make sure that they're discreet because you don't want the word of this to get out before you're clearer about it. So ask people, find some people in the organization who you trust and who are discreet and say, okay, we're intending to make this change. Let's talk about how that could be beneficial to you. That's the best way versus just making it up. Yes. I think that's such a strong point. Let's talk about something that many managers and leaders are facing now since August has been dubbed the month of the great resignation and managers are looking at their teams and saying, gosh, we really do want to retain our top talent. What is it from your research and work with companies of all sizes across the country? What is it that makes good employees stay? Managers should be focused on rather than just saying, let's give people a couple days off, or maybe we could look at some salary increase, which you and I know (laughs) are two of the most popular yet least effective ways of communicating to employees that this is a place where they can grow and flourish. At the risk of just focusing everything on change. I think so much is about change. What I've seen is that when a company needs to make some changes and uses this kind of approach to change that I'm recommending, where you just get more and more people involved as you go along and you help people to understand the change and to move through their own change arc, that is really motivating to people because people know that we're in a time of change. And most people who leave companies at this point, I suspect they're saying there are all kinds of things about this company that aren't working. So if you can say, yes, we're going to address those things and we need your help and here's how we're going to do it. Most people want to be involved in making things better. Now, there is a subset of people who are using this strange time to get clear about this isn't the right job for me. So you are going to lose some people, but the people who want to stay, they can be helped to stay by being included in the evolution that's happening. I think that so many conversations I've had recently with managers and leaders, people are saying, Well, isn't it obvious that we're working to create an environment that's going to help us flourish and move forward? I often challenge them and say, you may be thinking so, but the people who are on the front lines may not know that unless you include them in those conversations and ask them what would be helpful from their perspective, because you can't just have this conversation among a small group. At a certain point, you've got to roll it out to larger groups, or I love your phrase, to cascade it through the organization. Can you share an example of how you've used this within a client example? a case study where it's actually been implemented and the leaders understand the need for it. We're missing some of these pieces or perspectives that make change effective and have been able to adopt it in order to affect that type of change. Yes. I'll use an example of a client that we're right in the midst of this right now who has said that we can share their information. And the leader of the organization, his name's David, and he's the president of Spectrum Reach Media Sales, the media sales part of Charter. They're headquartered in Connecticut. New York. We've been working for them on this for the last couple months. The most important change that they're having to go through right now, this is true of all media companies, advertising parts of media companies, that for 50 years, media sales, advertising sales has been ratings based. It's been based on how is this show rated? And then we can, we sell ads based on the ratings. Now it's moving toward impression based, which is eyeballs. How many impressions are we getting across all the platforms? So this company, 
Spectrum Reach, wants to move in the next couple of years, all impressions-based selling across all the platforms, which means linear, online, mobile, all their platforms, and all their audiences. So that's a huge change. They had already started trying to make it over the last 18 months in a lot of ways, but it hadn't come together and they hadn't used this process that we're talking about. So we got together with the senior leadership team and they did step one, which is, okay, let's really clearly define this change. Let's create that elevator pitch for change. What's the why? Then step two, what will it look like when it's done? What's the post-change future we're looking for? How will we measure that success? So the first thing is vision. What are the four or five things that will be true in a couple of years when we've moved to fully impression-based selling? And how will we measure the success of each one of those four or five things we see in our vision? So both aspiration and practicality, right? Then they did what in step three is, let's bring some more people into the tent. Let's create a change team because usually there are 3,000 people in Spectrum Reach. The senior leadership team is not going to be the change team for the most part. They're not going to be the people who are clarifying the plan and then driving the change. So they nominated a change team, people one or two levels down from them with a leader and an executive sponsor, one of the people from the change team. Now that change team is meeting and are starting to do the next things in step three, which are identify the key stakeholders that are neither on the senior team or on the change team. There are probably some other key stakeholders who really need to understand and support the change Who are those? How do you engage them? And then most important for step three, build the change plan, the nuts and bolts change plan. I was thinking that they also needed to incorporate some measures and input from their stakeholders who weren't the change team or even internal to the company. What's it going to mean to the advertisers and the buyers and educating them about what's coming up? That actually is part of the change plan. Like how do we educate them? For the most part, the advertisers and the buyers want to move to impressions-based, but part of the change plan is how do we clarify for them when and how and why this change is happening for sure. Step four, we call lead the transition. And this is the human part. In step four, I would say four is the part that most often doesn't happen in change and it's why change doesn't work. So the first thing is the change team, and I'm going to be working with them to do this, they'll figure out who are the internal groups who are going to be most affected by the change. What is going to be ending and beginning for them and the change. What are they going to have to let go of and what are they going to have to move toward? Because that will help them to figure out what's likely to seem difficult, costly, and weird to this group and what then they can propose as easy, rewarding, normal. So then you make a transition plan for those people. How are you going to help those people who are most affected by the change? Usually there are three or four groups and they're not all the same. So you make a kind of change plan for each of those groups to help them move through their change arc. Then you lay those transition plans on top of the change plan because lots of times when you do that, redundancies that you can iron out, you understand that there are ways in which they have to align time-wise, and then you can execute the change and transition plans together, which is marvelous because you're doing the nuts and bolts things. At the same time, you're giving that support to help people through their change arc so that they actually accept the change. And step five, we call keep the change going. That's how do you make sure the change is adopted? How do you monitor progress, ongoing, make ongoing adjustments? And almost most important, how as you're once you're executing the change plan, you almost always find ways in which your organization itself gets in the way of change, either structurally 
individually or mm. systemically or culturally. So you look to make changes to make the organization more change capable, which not only makes sure that this change is adopted, but sets you up to be better able to adopt adopt all the changes that are going to come down the line. From your experience, what are one or two additional things that people need to think about in order to keep change going once a change has been initiated? Oh, I love that question. It's you have to stay in that curious mindset because a lot of times it's easy once you've made a change to go, shoot, okay, we're done. Then when things come up, wait, this isn't working quite well, or this thing that you thought was going to happen isn't happening. It's easy to just talk yourself out of it and go, no, 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 la, 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 we're fine. But just to stay curious and say, wait, what? let's look at that. Is that something we didn't think about? How do we need to respond to that? Sometimes you have to have little subsequent loops of change because things will come up that you had no way of knowing. I suspect in this change that we're helping Spectrum reach with, it could be that once the change has been made, we find out that there are systemic things that we didn't even look for. One of the examples I give in the book is a company that decided to change their production process for their core product. And they automated part of it and they made the change. What they realized is after the automated part of the process, it was getting hung up because it was then going back to the human part of the process. It wasn't fast enough. The automated part of the process was producing parts that they couldn't deal with. So they had to double up. They had to do a whole another little change to fix that and to double up the people on the part of the production line where it came out of the automated part. It sounds so obvious that you can't double production just by turning up the speed of the conveyor belt. Exactly. <laughs> there are other things that have to be put into place. Yes. And a lot of them, you, even if they seem obvious, you don't see them until the change has been made. And then you can't just kind of do a look and a promise. You need to go through a little mini version of, okay, who's going to be affected by this? What do we need to tell them? How can we give them more control in the process? It's a little mini change that has to go through the same steps as the big change. That's very clear. It brings us to the point where I'm going to ask you, Erica, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? All right. So at the beginning, I asked you about a phrase or quote that is meaningful to you and that helps guide you today. And you talked about assuming positive intent. And you've known about this for decades and decades. Erica, when you were growing up, what's a song that you loved as a teenager? The morning sun is rising like a red rubber ball. Red rubber ball, I think it was called. It was popular when I was 13 years old. And I love the hope of it. Excellent. So what do you find is the most effective way to get your message out each week in order to let people know that when they need to build their capacity for change or make the process more effective because it's high risk, that your Proteus is the place to contact and to find you so that you can have a conversation? Wonderful question. I would say our social media feeds, which we have a wonderful guy, Jason, helping us. We're getting more and more followers and engagement, primarily on Twitter and LinkedIn a little bit on Facebook, but primarily on Twitter and LinkedIn and my monthly podcast. I think people find it very helpful. We send it out every month with a newsletter that I write and people seem to find that very helpful. What would you say is the best life advice you ever received? From my dad, and you will love this because it was get curious. My dad was the single most curious person I've ever met. And he taught me so much about just the power and value of curiosity. What's an example of something that you wouldn't have expected, but he just became curious about? Oh, 
he was wonderful. I remember once when I was a little kid, we were on a vacation. I grew up in Omaha and we were out in Western Nebraska and we were in a diner, I guess. And he started talking to the waitress and she told him that she and her husband had a farm. He got super curious about that. And wow, what's that to work in town and to work on the farm? How do those get in the way or do they help each other? What do you guys grow? He spent 10 minutes talking to this waitress in a diner in Western Nebraska because he just wanted to find out about her life. It was such a great example for me. I love that. Tell me, in the last six months or so, what's been the best $100 or so purchase that you've made? Oh my gosh. This is not the last six months, but I'll, I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, a couple of years ago, my husband and I bought a little Cuisinart ice cream maker and I use it almost every week because you can make healthy ice cream. You can use yogurt and low-fat milk. We use yeah. monk fruit instead of sugar. We use fresh fruit. It's absolutely delicious. It takes 45 minutes. I'm a big fan. Love it. So complete this prompt for me. I know I'm being successful when... People are better able to be the people they want to be. Here's another prompt. I can see that a business has effective leadership when I notice... That people go to the leaders for advice and counsel. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? This is a weird one, but I have stopped using paper. One of the weird byproducts of the pandemic for me is now is that I now do everything electronically. I no longer have folders and pieces of paper. I take all my notes electronically and then keep them safe in the cloud. And I just, I don't have bits of paper lying around all over the place. I do everything electronically. It's been wonderful. <laughs> nice. Tell me, what's something that has occurred to you or an insight that you've gained since writing the book? You've gotten it published. People have read it. You may have gotten some additional feedback that you hadn't anticipated. What's one thing that you may have learned since writing this book? The most touching and wonderful thing that I heard was my publisher, BK, Barrett Kohler, who I, this is the first time working with them, and they've been absolutely lovely. They do something that even though this is my fifth book, I never experienced this before. After they've accepted the manuscript, they have hundreds of reviewers and they pick the three whose professional experience is most aligned with the book, and they send it to those reviewers to get their feedback. I've never had this happen before. It was a wonderful process. One woman, one of the reviewers who has been working professionally as a change agent and a change consultant for 30 years said, I wish I had this book 30 years ago. Because what it says about how individual people go through change combined with this very clear rigor about the change itself would have saved me lots of heartache and problems. I can't, you can imagine, Bill, I can't even tell you how I'm so happy and grateful. I feel like that's it. I may be wrong, but I have not seen another approach that fully integrates the human and practical sides of change. I think that's the power in what we're doing here. I also can imagine looking to read what the reviewer said and the juxtaposition from, oh my gosh, what criticism is coming our way to this, oh, she loved it. Wow. No, that was amazing. They, they were, all three of them were very kind and the tweaks that they had were super valuable and it was a wonderful experience. I'm really glad BK does it that way. That's terrific. Erica, you have been terrific in sharing with me on my quest for the best today. We started off talking 
about assuming positive intent and the importance of being able to think about things and choose your perspective and being aware of our own self-talk as a prerequisite to being good managers and leaders, whether you're engaged in change efforts or not at the present time. I love the whole image of the change arc, and I hope people take away from this conversation as well as when they buy the book, the image of the change arc, being able to present the change and then see mind shifts happen either in ourselves or in others that we're looking to influence before we start to take action and then produce those types of results. I found those so valuable. I love the example that you shared with us about David, who's president of Spectrum Reach and is going through this change effort himself and the different stages and wisdom that you gained along with your colleagues at Proteus as you help companies become more effective at affecting change. Erica Anderson, for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Oh, thank you so much, Bill. This has been great. You always ask such wonderful questions and I obviously love talking about this. So thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Erica, uh, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that people could go to find out more about you and your work online? The first place to go is my website, Erica Anderson, E-R-I-K-A-A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N.com. That will link you up to the books and my Proteus business website and everything. Erica, we're going to link to ericaanderson.com. We're going to spell it correctly so that people could just go to the show notes and find to your website, the link to your company's website, all your social media, as well as links to buy the book wherever it's convenient for the visitor. So Erica Anderson, author of Change from the Inside Out, making you, your team, and your organization change capable. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you. That was great. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.